gentlemen and corner kick fam welcome back it is the one and only corner kick i am nathan strauss and i'm joined by a man who is not from the small african nation of Comoros, advancing to the knockout stages of afcon for the first time it is caleb Rhodes. what what gave it away the cypriot passport actually Ah. Oh, um, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> yeah, and nothing else. And, <laughs> no. <laughs> and absolutely nothing else. And uh, I have also joined, we are also joined by a man who does not have seven goals against Arsenal in five appearances. That's not Diego Jota, although his hairstyle is quite better. It is Nick Gavinden. Yes. Yeah, dude. What another what a performance from Diogo today. And we'll get on to it, obviously. But yes, Liverpool are going to Wembley for the first time in a long time. Yeah. So why don't we start with with that match? It's fresh in our minds after the most entertaining and disappointing nil nil draw of all time last week with Arsenal down to 10 men. Arsenal just needed a win at the Emirates to book their place in the final against Chelsea. Instead, after dominating for 20 minutes, Jota scuffs the finish home, and then Liverpool basically suffocated Arsenal for the next 70 minutes, and Arsenal compounded their misery in many ways, including Thomas Partey, who quite literally arrived in London at midday on the flight back from Cameroon, getting himself sent off with two yellow cards in three minutes, and Jota scoring a a delightful chipped finish to send Arsenal uh, deep into misery, but Nick it's a cup final. It might not be the most important cup final, but it's still a cup final. How do you rate today and sort of what it means for the club? So this is the first time we'll be going to, you know, an FA cup or a league cup final since 2016, which is Klopp's first season at the club. We lost in the league cup final to Man City that year. Uh, Fernandinho, a rare Fernandinho goal. Uh, cost us in that one but yeah I think it is really important since obviously you know we've already concluded on this podcast that even though Liverpool look likely to finish around second or third they're certainly not going to be contending for the Premier League title this season and you know the Champions League is always you know a bit of a shootout in this day and age so I think it is important that this Liverpool team who are aging a bit You know, Jordan Henderson is 31. You know, Mo Salah and Sadio Mane are going to turn 30. Roberto Firmino is 30. It's important that this team, you know, starts to accrue a bit more silverware for, you know, their lasting legacy. And I think, you know, adding, like you said, the League Cup isn't the most important trophy of them all. But, you know, cups are cups, trophies are trophies. And Liverpool, not to sound, you know, like (laughs) your average British pundit, but Liverpool are a team that, you know, need to be consistently competing for trophies. Uh, at Nick, every level, Steve McManaman. Yeah, exactly. over here. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I thought I thought today's performance was very encouraging, particularly since you know last week's game was the first game without Mo Salah and Sadio Mane, who are obviously at Afcon. And the Brentford game really showed that I think this Liverpool team really just needed a game 
to get up to grips without having those two in the team. Um, you know, Minamino recovering from an injury and playing in that last week's uh, game really did not have the best of performances, was benched at the weekend against Brentford and um, was benched today in favor of Cade Gordon, the 17-year-old who Liverpool signed from Derby County. And he is he scored a goal in the FA Cup uh, against Shrewsbury. But he looks like he's going to be a really promising player for this Liverpool team. I thought, you know, a bit nervous start for him today, but once Liverpool started to get into rhythm, as Nathan said, around the 20th minute, I thought he really performed quite well. Jota, it was a scuffed shot. However, I think he really took advantage of the fact that, you know, Arsenal really don't have a lot of depth, uh, particularly in the defensive or the midfield positions. And Jota really capitalized on a really leggy Tomiyasu in that first half. And, you know, once Liverpool get that first goal, they really can start to suffocate you, especially if, you know, you are a team that is going through, you know, quite, we heard like, obviously Arsenal needed to postpone their fixture at the weekend, the North London Derby and are going through, you know, a lot of issues in midfield, a lot of legginess in the team. And I thought you could see that today. I thought Liverpool could have scored three or four in the second half. But we will take, you know, the cup final at Wembley. And and I think what will be a really competitive game against Chelsea. Yeah, I'd much rather see Liverpool play Chelsea in the final than Arsenal. I think at this rate, Arsenal would be the only team that, that Chelsea would, you know, get a win over and not a draw, only by virtue of, you know, a final being a game where, Somebody has to win and, and somebody has to lose. Um, but I agree with a lot of what you said, Nick. I think, you know, after the first leg of this tie, we were like, oh my God, is this what Liverpool are going to look like offensively? You know, while their two talismanic wingers are away at AFCON and will continue to be away at AFCON with both Senegal and Egypt going through. But definitely the last few games, Liverpool have showed that you know, they can they can get goals when they need it. Um, and Arsenal, you know, are suddenly in, you know, not the the greatest bit of form or greatest bit of sort of team energy. I don't know, Nathan, what did, what did you make of this tie? Are you kind of glad it's it's done with and you can kind of refocus your energies back on on the prem? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it really just goes to show how big the gulf in in squad depth is between these two teams because i know like nick we've talked about how liverpool need to spend more and obviously you're missing two of your front three right now at afcon plus minus kaita uh, etc but you know when one piece is missing from this arsenal midfield or this arsenal lineup it's so catastrophic and i think that yes arsenal have potential to i would say finish in six this year and try and, you know, make European competition again. But clearly Arsenal need upgrades in the midfield department, but most glaringly at the striker uh, position. They've been linked really heavily with uh, Dusan Vlahovic. They've also been linked with Alexander Ishak, amongst others. So as much as I like Lacazette, and I think he's been a good servant for Arsenal, he doesn't exactly fit the age profile of this team. So you know, props to Arsenal for for securing that draw with 10 men. But I, I, the last thing is, it's just so frustrating to, like, get Thomas Partey back after Ghana surprisingly crashed out of AFCON, only for him to then get himself sent off so that he won't be available on Sunday against Burnley. It's There's something very Arsenal about that. And I think this result is extra disappointing because I was so ready to rub in um, to, to sort of rub it in for Spurs losing to Leicester, who were playing with one natural center back and a back three yesterday. 
And then, of course, they scored two goals after the 94th minute. So it's been a bit of a dim week for Arsenal. The only good news is that it looks like Matt Turner might be on his way to uh, to back up Aaron Ramsdale, which I think I can certainly get behind. But otherwise, yeah, pretty uh, pretty crap couple of days for Arsenal. Hey, hey think- at least at least Leicester, you know, play games. <laughs> I'm, I'm, like. Well, it wasn't it wasn't the case for a while that Leicester's playing games is relatively Leicester new thing first, for him. Dude, yeah. Leicester was actually the first team to do yeah. all no, this. No, but right? they, but they played they this like, game. They okay. didn't play that game. Okay, okay, yeah. okay. At that point, can, can, can we talk about it? Can, can Hold we on. talk? I want okay, to before, before we move on. I, I want to mention one the... thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, we... but then we need to get to the our Leicester kind of or not Leicester our Arsenal being like a little. We're trying to get out of out of the North London derby. Well, Nick, 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 you make Nick, you make your point first. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I just wanted to highlight Trent Alexander Arnold with two more assists today. That takes him up to 14 in all competitions this season. That is, you know, uh, that is more than enough for a player playing in a midfield or an attacking position, let alone a defender. You know, he's 23 years old, so he's coming into, you know, the middle stages of his career and he is showing no signs of stopping his improvement and I think you know right now Jacques Cancelo was the cream of the crop I think at fullback last season particularly when you know Liverpool were going through their center back crisis but now that Van Dyke and Matip have been fully fit this season you've seen Trent come into his own as an absolutely elite playmaker in world football not that he didn't have the talent to do so already but I think this season he's going to end up with you know around 20 or so assists which is absolutely absurd for a player you know cutting in from right back I believe it was the hundredth combined assist between Trent and Robbo since the two of them started playing regularly on the wings. So that's a, a pretty crazy number. Let, we can have this conversation quickly because we didn't, we didn't, <laughs> we didn't get to have it, uh, you know, last week. I so right. basically, there's this big inflammatory response to Arsenal requesting the postponement of the North London Derby, which was supposed to be last Sunday. At the same time as they requested this postponement, they let, you know, Ainsley Maitland-Niles leave on loan to Roma. They let Fuller and Balogun leave on loan to Middlesbrough. Pablo Marie. They let Pablo, Pablo Marie's deal was just completed today, but that was sort of in the works. Basically, Arsenal could have put out 11 players, not really in any sort of congruent formation. They would have had about three center backs, uh, no strikers with, 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 players dealing with injuries, AFCON, and COVID. Um, it certainly seems like there was COVID going around, um, you know, because Odegaard missed out on the game last week at Anfield. But mostly, Arsenal were just really thin on depth for in, for largely injury-related reasons. You know, um, Tomiyasu and Smith-Rowe were both injured. They weren't fully fit today either. Um, but Arsenal on Friday formally requested that the PL postpone the game on Sunday and the PL acquiesced. And I, I think games should be played. I think Arsenal's game should have been played with against Spurs on Sunday. But I think that reacting overly strongly to Arsenal requesting the postponement when Frankly, Arsenal played the first game of the year without four starters due to COVID. And when all of the other teams since December have been basically able to request games to get postponed at their whim and having it be successful, I think it's a little bit of uh, there's a little bit of hypocrisy amongst the media. So clearly the Prem needs to take a, a stronger stance to limit stuff. And like 
Arsenal, what they did was probably a little bit sneaky, but it's also what other teams have been doing because there's no transparency from the top down. And I think that's a pretty measured stance. Like, obviously, I want to see games get played, and that's what academies are for as well. But to blame just Arsenal when other teams have been doing this for six weeks is a little bit, a little bit much. No, I don't, I don't, I don't just blame Arsenal. I I blame all the teams. I think it was just in Arsenal's case, you know, like the reason most games have been canceled is because, you know, there's been several COVID cases in a team. And to my understanding, you know, that wasn't really the case at Arsenal. And I think it was just, as you said, like compounded with it, not really being a COVID issue and them letting, you know, three first team players leave on loan in that week. And, you know, the fact that they have a giant youth system with lots of, you know, pro contract players, I think you, you just have to, to play. And so I think Arsenal just, it, it's just like, I think probably one of the more egregious examples that we've seen. And I'm glad that you agree. Yeah. But the FA needs to put their foot down. A I think the other, more. the other thing was, is that I think this is probably the most high profile fixture that has been postponed right, due right. to COVID. Right. We had, we had a few of the boxing day games like Liverpool Leeds and a lot of Burnley games I know have been called off and the Leicester stuff that Nathan was talking about earlier. This was the most, you know, there's a lot of TV channels that were going to make a lot of money from showing the North London Derby on Sunday. And that probably, you know, ruffled some feathers the wrong way. And Arsenal, <laughs> as always, are quite uh, an easy club to pile on for one reason or another. I think the virality of, you know, the Arsenal being quite a meme has sort of developed in the past uh, seven or eight years or so. <laughs> I mean, but, the last the, the last 55, right. last 180 well, years of soccer. But yeah, I think... Um, and, you know, Tottenham are in a pretty good moment right now, undefeated in the league since Antonio Conte took over. So I think they're, they're you know, their performances haven't been incredible, but they're certainly riding high on a wave of momentum. So there is definitely, you know, an anticipation, an anticipation to see that clash. I just think, you know, Nathan, I'm with you. The games need to be played. I think this goes back to, we've had this conversation so many times in regards to refereeing, but I think administratively the, the Premier League is so horrible with transparency and knowing what exactly the rules are and it seems like they do just kind of make them up on the fly in regards to covid in particular and postponements because last season i'm sure liverpool would have wanted to ask for you know certain games to be postponed when they're having to throw out you know like 19 year olds in the back line so I do think, you know, it looks like, you know, per the athletics reporting that they have gone back and they are, you know, revising some of these postponement rules and protocols, but it would have been nice to have, you know, some semblance of transparency before, you know, games started being called off for questionable reasons. That all sounds agreeable to me. There was another game today that had more action and more chaos. It was... Bilbao and Barcelona in a game that saw many, many twists and turns, bicycle kick assists. Caleb, I know it might not have been the outcome that you wanted, but uh, as far as entertainment value goes, this was pretty pretty up there. Yeah, I mean, for, for a game that went, you know, 120 minutes, there were goals in the second all the way through goals in the 106th. So that's that's generally good value for money. Obviously, it did not turn out the way that, that I hoped, uh, Barcelona succumbing uh, to Bilbao at San Mames. Uh, first, you know, Muni Ayin had a, had a goal 
in the second minute after uh, Nico or Nico Williams and Yaki Williams, 19 year old younger brother who with this appearance today um, officially got his new deal. It was like a, a minutes thing. So he got a new deal. His release clause is now up to 50 million and he looks to be quite a talent or at least he's as fast um, as his older brother flashing a, a ball across the goal and Muni Ayin scoring quite a nice curler. Um, I thought, uh, Nick, hold, hold up, Caleb. I, I, <laughs> I just want Inaki Williams. He's the guy who has never missed a game for Bilbao. Am I right in saying this? Uh, so it, it's something like, and I'm not sure if he still has it, but there was a point where like he hadn't missed a single game for Bilbao in La Liga in like six years or something like that. Like, wow. it, And it was the longest active streak in La Liga. Like he played in every game, every season. Um, he, he, yeah. I think there are certain leagues that have like their cult figures somewhat, you know, players who are, you know, really good. Wilfred Zaha was this for a while, right? Where he is like really good quality, could probably play at a top team, but is sticking uh, to, you know, his local club, you know, the club that turned him into a, a star. And to see like, we, I don't know if you've ever had this situation where like someone's brother is also coming up at that team. And there was a cool moment in the, sorry to totally derail this, but there's a cool moment in the midweek <laughs> in Saudi Arabia where Nico Williams was coming off the podium after losing to Real Madrid with the loser's medal. And he, you know, rips off the loser's medal and he like tries to, you know, pocket it or whatever. And Anaki Williams, his older brother goes up to him and is like, no, like put the loser's medal back on, like show respect. Like we you know, you're not going to get many of these opportunities, like remember this moment. And I thought that was like a very, very cool, like fraternal moment of two players who, you know, are brothers sharing that experience together. And like, a, it is very cool. Like it's just, for me, it's just a very cool, like storyline, 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 but, but continue. Yeah. So Barcelona who were largely outplayed in the first half, were able to respond. Uh, Ferran Torres who got, you know, another start in this game, scored his own pretty excellent curler, I would say, uh, to open his account for the Blaugrana. In the second half, uh, it was a late Inigo Martinez goal off of a set piece in the 86th minute that seemed to put Bill Bow ahead before, as sort of Nathan introed, a kind of last gasp bicycle kick across the box assist for Pedri tied it up in the, you know, 93rd minute in stoppage time. However, a Jordi Alba handball in the 104th minute led to a penalty for Bilbao, who sealed it from there. This is a pretty back and forth game. It was the first game that Pedri and Gavi have started together, to my knowledge. Um, I think there's a lot to, to, to like in this game, but again, our, our defensive fragility at times is pretty stark. And, you know, as the game went on, you know, we brought on Sufati on, um, but he kind of ended up picking up a little knock as did Pedri. And so, you know, it, it was, it was a moment of highs and a moment of lows. And unfortunately uh, what goes up must come down. And at the end of the day, pr pretty down. We also should probably talk about the Dembélé. I was gonna. I was. Too. I was just gonna um, say it's. <laughs> we woke up this morning to to Fabrizio Romano tweeting that Barcelona are, you know, officially done with Dembélé and that the parties won't be renewing. 
Dembélé had a little bit. I would say Dembélé Dembélé had a little bit done with Barcelona. I think I I think it's pretty mutual at this point. He went on a little mini tirade on Instagram as well, but it seems like, you know, that is finally done and dusted and, you know, maybe he will go off to Newcastle or, you know, whoever wants to pick him up in the last 6 months of his deal, but you know, with Fati picking up another knock as he is uh slightly prone to do, unfortunately, you know, Barcelona remain a little bit short of attacking depth. Although Braithwaite coming back gives you at Lord least a body. Who his New Year's resolution? Do you remember his New Year's resolution? Was it uh, to score a hat trick for Barcelona? Yeah, yeah. He tweeted out his New Year's resolution was to score a hat trick, which like I I can dig that energy. Like go for it. Uh, I would love. I that. mean, he's better than Jutgla. No offense could, to Jutgla. Uh, but he, he could better. score score a hat trick and then you know sell whatever condo. <laughs> yeah, he does kind of. Miami. He does kind of have like. Yeah, he does sort of remind me of like it, Pitbull's Danish cousin. Isn't that he's the dude who has like the side real estate gig? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's worth like um, I don't know. I'm probably gonna get this wrong, but he's worth like hundreds of millions of dollars because he made some savvy real dude, estate. I would also I would also about. play for Barcelona if I had hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, on the Dembele situation, yeah. I am not sure what the market for an Usman Dembele is anymore. Like, for context, Usman Dembele makes more money than Mohamed Salah. That's, I just don't know what... T- uh, I just you know, know what? Wh- Mo Salah's agent is using that stat right now in his negotiations <laughs> with FSG. Uh, yeah, I just, I just <laughs> gave some firepower to Rami Abbas, uh, Mo Salah's very vocal agent on Twitter, if you ever come across any of his stuff. But... Um, yeah, I just don't know what the market because you're gonna Usman Dembele is not going to take you know a a budget style deal. So it is going to be a club like Newcastle who have the the funds to spend and take a risk, take a gamble on a player like Dembele, whose fitness has always you know been a, a real question throughout his career, and now has you know <laughs> some clear personal issues that he needs to work through. I'm not you know here to adjudicate whether who's in the wrong here, Barcelona or Dembele, as as it often is, is probably a bit no, of both. It's Dembele. No, it's Dembele. But, but you never know. How, I mean, we never know how these things happen behind the scenes, right? So I'm not, you know, one to speculate, but I just don't know what the market is currently for, you know, a player like Usman Dembele, who the market for those types of players has definitely been slashed a lot due to the finances of COVID. Yeah, I mean, that that's the question I'm mainly left with. Like, okay, I'm past it. He He's decided not to re-sign the deal, but... Is there an offer on the other side that like I'm not fully aware of? And like, who is that from? And as you said, like the only team I can really think that would offer him, you know, even his current wages, which are pretty astronomical, is a team like Newcastle. And I'm just like, really? Like, you want to join a team that's in like 19th place in the Premier League just to make, you know, still an obscene amount? I, 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 I'm just like truly unsure about this. And I'm also a little irritated that he's dragged this on for literally like months and months now and didn't give us a decision by January 1st. And so now we're Barcelona's in a weird position where, you know, we're going to try to move him on either for sale or for loan, but it's pretty late in the window now. Um, And it puts us in an awkward place where like, we're probably going to bring him on the bench to games, but ideally don't want to use him because you never want to be in a situation where we're down a goal and, you know, we bring him on suddenly he wins the game and it kind of proves that he's worth more than, than we said 
And so I'd rather just not have to worry about him. But unfortunately, he and his agent, who seems to be like the main protagonist, honestly, behind the scenes, um, ha- have put Barcelona in a pretty tough spot. And I think embarrassed the club in a lot of ways because part of the public relations, you know, bit of this was, you know, like Laporta and Xavi saying very publicly how good they thought he was and how important he was to the club's plan. And so I, I don't think he's shown proper respect to the club. Um, I don't think he's really demonstrating like great intelligence for his own career. Um, and, you know, I hope he does well wherever he goes, but I think he's not going to go somewhere that's really competing for trophies right now. I mean, it also comes amidst a week where Barcelona had to, uh, you know, re-sign Samuel Mtiti to get the wages off the books to, you know, register Ferran Torres only for Mtiti to then be out for what, three months. So it's another sort of, I guess, piece of drama in a club that probably doesn't need it right now. But speaking of Barcelona-related drama, Caleb, I know you wanted to touch on this from the uh, the FIFA awards, the FIFA, the best awards last last week. What was up with that? Yeah, so the, the FIFA, the best awards, which are a kind of another one of the now seemingly infinite number of awards that we give out to the same, you know, cast of, of soccer players to say that they're the best. And really it's kind of a, you know, swinging dick contest between different soccer federations about whose award matters more. Um, but no matter, in this iteration, uh, after, you know, Lewandowski won the best men's award and Alexia Putellas, who had already won the Ballon d'Or, uh, also received the uh, the best FIFA Women's Player Award as the best player, um, women's player in the world. And, you know, obviously, as a result, the best player on the FCB Femini team, who are so shockingly dominant, it, it's kind of mind-boggling and just dismantled everyone in the Champions League. But then, you know, a little later, they go through the show, you know, best best women's coach, best goalkeeper, et cetera, et cetera, the Pushkas Award. And they get to, you know, like the FIFA Pro XI, which is in theory, you know, like the best 11 in world soccer. The men's 11 had its own problems in that it was like a 3-3-4 formation, which I think is quite strange. Um, but on the women's side, the, the person who they just awarded the best player in the world award to was not in the team, nor was any single other of her teammates on FC Barcelona, which I just think is like, pretty ridiculous and as i you know mentioned in the chat i I think we're we're at the point where there's just too many of these awards and they increasingly seem to be like very very meaningless and it makes me a little sad because i remember you know you know 10 years ago or something like the ballon d'or was like to me felt really really important um and now i'm kind of at the point where i just ignore almost all of this because it, it seems so unmoored from from fact, and it can't even be, you know, self-consistent in its own award show. I got a boomer take about this. <laughs> Social media me. has ruined these awards. And like media engagement has completely like invalidated and ruined these awards. Like, and this part of this goes back to, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo winning all these awards, these individual awards and being part of these team of the years this season, where he's like come nowhere close. Like, yes, he's scored, you know, the goals for Juve in the previous season, but his overall play, like he got knocked out of the Euros uh, with Portugal and things like that. And yes, obviously, you know, many players from Barca Femini deserved to be in this team, but Barca Femini, 
aside from Alexia Patelis, they're a team. Like they are a T E A M. They're not like a collection of individuals. And I think, you know, the FIFA best awards seem to highlight, you know, high profile individuals with a lot of social media engagement over the best actual players. Right. Yeah. I and- think it also has like a weird bias towards like, English teams and French teams and Indeed. also like American teams. And I think they, they're just not ready to contend with like a good Spanish team, even though it's the best. Yeah. I mean, I mean, on the women's side of things too, like awards have been notoriously skewed towards the American side of things. Like if you watch any amount of European soccer, you'd be shocked at the sort of big names that got into this best 11, despite their current levels of ability, not being like particularly close. Like I watched Barcelona play Arsenal in the champions league group stages this year. And Arsenal are, I mean, they're currently in a five-game winless run, but they are a top-two team in England, and they were getting just absolutely battered. I think they lost the first game 5-0 or 5-1. Like, Barcelona are just, like, shockingly dominant. Um, And even the the shortlist for the coaches as well was heavily reputation-based. And so I appreciate Nick going sort of full English 50-year-old pundit on today's episode, but I do think that he's definitely right. Um, on this one. And I also think that you do see sort of the, the the law of diminishing returns. The more award shows that we have, the lesser the value of each successive award. So, yeah. Sorry, sorry to keep belaboring this, but just to give a sense. Uh, so Barcelona in the sort of Premier Division in Spain, FCB Femini, have won all 17 games they've played this year. They have scored 98 goals in those 17 games, and they've only conceded four. Sociedad are in second place, 11 points behind, and they have the second best offense in the league and they've only scored 39. Atleti have the second best defense in the league and they've, only, and they've conceded 14. Barcelona's goal difference is 94, Atleti's is 25. Like the level of domination within their league and as Nathan said also like in Europe is pretty much untold of probably in like the history of, of, of soccer. No, it's insane. And they finished with similar numbers last season with 130 something goals and only six or 12, six to 12 goals conceded or something like that. It's, it's ridiculous. They beat, you know, a really, really proficient Chelsea team coached by Emma Hayes, who is probably like one of the best, I would say soccer coaches in the world, not just, you know, women's soccer coaches. Like they're an incredible beast of a team and, you know, deserve to be recognized as such. Shall we move on to AFCON before finishing up with Everton? Because we sort of touched a little bit on AFCON um, earlier in the Arsenal-Liverpool discussion, but there are some big-name teams that have dramatically underperformed and also some small-name teams that have really overperformed. Let's start with the, uh, the underperformers. Nick, the defending champions out after the group stages. They're out and they, they got embarrassed. Like, this is an embarrassing tournament for Algeria, who finished rock bottom of their group. Really, really disappointing in games that they probably should have won. And, I mean, I think you have to look at the fact that AFCON always produces these kind of surprises. It is really, you know, the great leveler in terms of elite football tournaments because you have all these players from glamorous European clubs like Riyad Mahrez coming from Man City 
and you know various players they lost 3-1 today to the ivory coast and like kessier and singare and pepe coming from europe you know seb holler obviously played in this game syed ben rama from west ham and ismail benacer you know ex-arsenal currently you know in with uh ac milan and syria and they they all come with limited training time uh limited team cohesion and are expected to play on let's be honest not the best of you know footballing surfaces uh and it is really kind of like in really really hot conditions like it is it is extremely dangerously hot in Cameroon right now. Actually, like that is why you saw that like referee gaff last week it was because the guy was just trying to get off the field because he was having heat stroke. So we did laugh at that dude. I hope that dude is okay. But I think Algeria going out is just a symptom of AFCON being kind of one of the craziest tournaments in world football, both in like conditions and, you know, being a great leveler there's no real team that stands out above the rest yeah and, and gotta shout out some overperformers as well some teams that were making waves obviously in a group that contained morocco gabon and ghana there was going to be you know some team that went home upset but i think a lot of people thought it was going to be the eventual third place team of comoros ranked 132nd in the world I didn't recognize a single player from their squad against Morocco. And I generally pride myself on being, you know, fairly up to date with like players from many different nations, but with a team comprised of, you know, Cypriot uh, players from their top league, uh, second and third yeah. division French players. Okay, Caleb. Um, <laughs> you know, a lot of players from like the French lower leagues and like the Portuguese second division, they managed to, to beat Ghana 3-2 yesterday in an insane game where Ghana came back twice to tie it uh, before Comoros scored the winner after Ghana was down to 10 men. Got to shout out Comoros, who, by the way, have one of what has to be the, the sickest flag in the country up there, or rather in the in the world, excuse me, up there with the Seychelles <laughs> for just absolute baller flags. Um, Sierra Leone finishing above Algeria. That's big. Um you know, unfortunately, our boys in Mauritania couldn't uh, score a goal. They uh, went 0-0-3. But, uh, you know, shout out Malawi as well for finishing pretty high. And, and Cape Verde, who uh, produce a lot of quality players, more than you'd expect, for advancing into the next round as well. So I've really enjoyed this tournament, honestly. I think there's been some great storylines. Comoros, Sierra Leone, like you said. I think Mali, who finished atop of Group F, have the potential to be a real spoiler in this tournament. They have a real high-powered midfield with the likes of, you know, Yves Basuma and Haidara in there playing as a really intriguing double pivot. I'm on the, the lookout for Nigeria. I think they could really, they have an extremely balanced team. I think along with the Ivory Coast, probably man for man, the best team at this tournament. But they are playing some really intriguing football right now. Kalechi Iannaccio almost dropping in as like this kind of hybrid center attacking midfielder striker role you know Wilfred and Didi obviously one of the best holding midfielders in the world and I think there's some high profile absences from this uh, Nigeria team but players like you know Frank Onyeka from Brentford and Moses Simon uh, who plays in Ligue 1 for Nantes have been really really intriguing players to watch so for right now I think I'm going to pick either you know Nigeria or Ivory Coast to lift this trophy but we shall see I yeah, gotta give I a think... shout out to my boys in Morocco as well but Caleb you go yeah, I was about to say, like, you're looking at, like, the actual matchups for, for the next round. 
um, there are definitely some some heavyweight ties. I mean, Nigeria played Tunisia, um, which I think is is pretty big. And then probably the the game of the rounds will be Ivory Coast Egypt, who then play you know the winner of Morocco and Malawi in the next round. And so probably, you know, I think whichever of you know those last four teams I mentioned can get a handle of that quadrant um, are probably you know feeling pretty good about the rest of the tournament. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm excited. I think last week, you know, in our, in our episode that wasn't, um, we, we talked a little bit about how, you know, the, the tournament was lacking a little bit of energy, but luckily since then, I think it's, it's picked up quite a bit. Um, and, and hopefully we'll continue to do so as we enter the knockout rounds. Before we depart for the evening, there's another club that we need to touch upon up there on Merseyside. It's not the club that wears red. It's the club that wears blue and their spirits are certainly as blue as their kits. What a disaster Everton are undergoing right now. It seems like everything has fallen apart from top down really. And it's sort of sad to see a little bit, although maybe Nick less, less so for you. Yeah, I mean, this is a this is a disaster, right? And it's gotten to the point where it's it's a little sad to even witness. Like at first, it was kind of funny. Uh, Rafa Benitez obviously being appointed at the start of the season, definitely a divisive appointment, if anything, amongst Everton fans. But the way that this is all unfolded this season has been, quite frankly, so disastrous and so confusing that before the show, I actually sat down and I made a timeline of all of the wild stuff that has happened at Everton this season. It'll take me, give me a second here. Okay, so Everton hired Rafa Benitez in the summer, right? Rafa fires the head of medical and the head of scouting. Everton then fire their sporting director, Marcel Brands, and they let Rafa Benitez take over recruitment. They sign two fullbacks for around 35 million. And then he fought with Lucas Digne he won the fight with Lucas Dinia and he sold Lucas Dinia to a rival in Aston Villa and then Everton sacked him. <laughs> like what, what a disastrous both chain of command and like way to operate your club. And I think this all goes back to, you know, the massive amount of money that has been spent by their owner, Fahad Mashiri, who I think as Caleb, I think you pointed out on this podcast seems to be wanting to transform Everton into this kind of like metropolitan, like sexy football club, you know, appointing the likes of Carlo Ancelotti and like young up and coming managers like Marco Silva, but never really having a direction for the way he wants to take the club, where he wants to take recruitment. And now they are kind of a, a sunk ship looking for a captain. And it seemed for a second there that they were looking to the first manager that Mahad Mashiri sacked as uh, as owner and Roberto Martinez to come over and take, take the job once again. But it looks like that's not going to be happening. Martinez is going to stay with the Belgian national team. But Caleb, this, this club, I think perhaps more than you know, any other established team in the Premier League is truly just a, a mess as of right now. Yeah, it's kind of a mess. Their squad has, you know, like the remnants of, you know, five or six managers' vain attempts to bring in players for, you know, way, way, way too much, a la, you know, Awobi for $35 million. And yeah, it's a pretty dire situation. I think we, you know, we can look back to our conversation in sort of August 
um, talking about, you know, the Benitez appointment. And I think we were skeptical of it. And, you know, I'm not sure he ever really did anything to convince us or, you know, especially the Everton fans in their new stadium, otherwise that he, he kind of cared at all. And, you know, it, it's a pretty bleak situation right now. I mean, they are, you know, they have a few games in hand, but they are just above the drop zone. They're losing games to, to Norwich, who, you know, we've talked a lot about how poor they are. And I think it'll require a pretty heroic uh, second half of the season um, to, to hopefully move them back into the mid table. I do get kind of like whiffs of, of Sunderland about them, which is definitely Ooh. not good. Um, and except they've got an older stadium. True. Yes. Yeah. The Netflix documentary is coming, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but I just mean like Sunderland, you know, I think like a, a relatively mainstay ish club in the first division, you know, that had its bright moments, but sort of increasingly found itself stuck towards the bottom and eventually, you know, got relegated. And I hope Everton don't get relegated. I think they are, you know, a team you think of when you think of the Premier League. And I think it would be a massive loss, you know, to not be able to have, you know, the Merseyside Derby, you know, twice a year. So I, I think they will escape the drop, but I think they need to do a lot of hard thinking about who they want to appoint with the intention of that being, you know, a th- an actual three-year appointment rather than, you know, a three-year contract for Benitez that got canceled six months in. Maybe we should talk about some of the sort of mooted appointments. Nick, you mentioned uh, Martinez. Rooney is in the mix, which I, I find intriguing, but is also dangerous. Lampard also in the mix. I don't, I don't really see that. Mourinho was, was touted earlier this week, um, but then was like, what? Why would I ever go to them? Um, so I don't Graham know. Potter. Graham Potter. I'm not sure why he would leave the Brighton project who are, you know, a solid 10 points ahead. And I think Brighton can be rather exciting at times. Who do you, who do you guys see as, as the next move or is, you know, Mashiri destined to kind of run this club into the ground Everton uh, till he dies. I think after Benitez, they need someone who, and I know you guys probably, I don't know if you're going to agree with this. I think they need someone who can get the fans on side and you can kind of boost the morale of the entire operation and I would look to, I would honestly, I think Wayne Rooney has done a, a, an amazing job with that Derby County team with extremely limited resources going through a crisis right now. We don't even know if they're going to be, you know, an existing football club come the beginning of next season. They're in that dire of straits that we hope that they are. They have a great fan base and a history. But I think if I'm Everton, I would look to someone like a Wayne Rooney who has shown to be, you know, a quality manager, albeit in the championship, but can at least you know, guide you through to the end of the season in a positive vibe somewhat. Yeah. I mean, I like the idea of, I like the idea of a Rooney. Um, but on the other hand, if I'm a club like Newcastle, I would try and buy someone, uh, you know, like DCL right now. Like I didn't, uh, Everton are, are a bit stretched thin as it is. And they are, you know, probably two losses away from being well and truly in the relegation fight. You know, right now they're six points outside, uh, you know, outside the drop, but with two games in hand. But if they lose those two games in hand that they have over Norwich, um, it's one game for Newcastle. 
excuse me, and they actually are the opposite. They're two games in front of Burnley in terms of matches played. Then that becomes, you know, damage control time for a club who has big goals of building a new stadium. Um, you know, a club that has spent really poorly since 2015 um, and a club that's been without key personnel for both on and off the pitch issues. So I certainly hope they can get it together as well, because no one would have predicted them to be facing the drop. But um, it seems like they're in for, you know, some uphill sledding the yeah. second half of the year. And and their next, you know, set of games is like a pretty key stretch. They play play Aston Villa, you know, helmed by Liverpool man Stevie G on Saturday. Then they play Brentford, Newcastle, Leeds, and Southampton before playing, you know, Manchester City at the end of February. But, you know, they need, those are all in theory games that they could win, I would say. Um, And they need to pick up as many points as possible. And they probably also need to just destroy Newcastle. Um, just to put like a, as much distance as possible between them and a team truly mired in the relegation zone and who, as we know, are, are making moves of their own to try to change that situation. Yeah, I just don't know who takes this job, right? Because they're in such a poor place in the Premier League table. One wrong misstep could really send them careening towards uh, a serious relegation firefight. And there's also just the atmosphere is so, so, so poor, both in terms of the administration and the fan base and the play on the field. I don't know if you guys have watched Everton much this season, but they have been truly dire and hard to watch at times. Barely can link passes together. Very much, you know, a long ball team. Very, 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 very conservative under Benitez. And so it'll take, you know, someone who can really galvanize the atmosphere. I think they're going to need a serious new manager bounce, whoever it is. I agree. Well, we will keep our eye on that. We've got a full weekend of fixtures coming up. And then of course we're approaching an international break as well, but we will of course be back with all of the latest news rumors, the transfer window coming to a close Canada, USA taking place in the freezing cold and likely in the snow All of that and more is coming up. But until next time, I've been Nathan Strauss. Gail Breads. Nick Evin. And something that we didn't get to do today, I wanted to shout him out. Shout out Steven Bergwijn for executing the latest ever comeback in Premier League history. Tottenham against Norwich. Tottenham against Leicester yesterday. They won that game 3-2. Insane. Insane. Like there's been a lot of comebacks uh, in the Premier League. You know, that is up there with, you know, the the Balotelli to Aguero and Diva Kariki scoring in the Merseyside Derby. That was a crazy, you know, English footballing moment. Just wanted to shout that out before we go. Well, on that happy note, we will see you all next time.